Dear ones, practicing righteousness is not a work which you can offer to God and on that basis be right before an infinitely holy God. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10 and consider the first four verses. Paul's plea on behalf of his Israelite brethren. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law. For righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus Christ is the end of keeping the law for the sake of being righteous before an infinitely holy God. Jesus Christ is the end of your works of righteousness as justifying yourself, as presenting yourself acceptable in his presence. What you need is to receive by faith the righteousness which comes from God, is what this text teaches, not to lean upon your own righteousness. No, beloved, your acceptance before the bar of God's infinite justice is now and forever based upon a righteousness alien to yourselves. A righteousness that comes from Christ alone and is imputed to you by trusting in Christ alone. At the moment that you believed in the saving merits of Christ alone, you were forever ordained or declared by God to be righteous in his sight. You are always and only righteous before God because of his imputed righteousness, not because of of your practicing righteousness. We must keep that distinction very clear. You are declared righteous by imputed righteousness, not by practiced righteousness. But having said that, let me add the following truth as well. Practicing righteousness by the power of the Holy Spirit is not optional in the life of the Christian. It is, in fact, a necessary fruit and evidence in the life of a Christian. In 1 John chapter 3, our sermon today is from 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. But we find in 1 John 3:10 these words. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Dear ones, practicing righteousness may be defined as joyfully obeying God's law in your life. Joyfully obeying God's law, submitting yourself to the law of God. That is practicing righteousness. And this practicing righteousness is as sure an evidence that you are alive as a Christian, as breathing is a sure indication and evidence that you are alive as a person. Children, look up here. Children, just as you could not live 
one day in your life without breathing. So likewise, you cannot live at all. You cannot live without practicing righteousness. You cannot live as a Christian if you do not practice righteousness in your life. Do you think just because I'm the pastor, children, do you think just because I'm the pastor that I don't have to practice righteousness? Of course not. The pastor has to practice righteousness if he calls himself a Christian. Do you think that your parents have to practice righteousness in their life? Absolutely. If they are Christians, they must practice righteousness. And so must you as well. Remember, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Now, that is the test of righteousness, which the Apostle John gives to his spiritual children in the faith. Now, how do you test yourselves to see if you really know and understand God? Well, you take this test of righteousness. And these are the kinds of questions that you should ask yourself. Do I love God's law? Do I desire to keep God's commandments? Do I grieve over my sin when I break God's commandments? And do I seek God's forgiveness when I break his commandments? And do I go to others against whom I have sinned and seek their forgiveness? You see, those are the kinds of questions that are tied up in this test of righteousness. Now, why does John give this test? Because he wants to see his children fail the test? Is that why he gives it? Children, in your schoolwork at home, do your parents have you take tests in order to see you fail? Do you think that's why they give you a test? They want to see you fail? Of course not. They don't want to see you fail. They want to see you pass. God, dear ones, has not given you this test of righteousness in order to see you fail. But he has given you this test of righteousness for these two stated reasons, according to 1 John 5.13. 1 John 5.13, we find these words. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. First purpose for writing these things, this this. These tests that John has given in this epistle that you may know that you have eternal life. So the first purpose, the first stated reason is to assure your heart that you have eternal life, to give you assurance, not to to take away assurance, but to give you assurance. That's why John has given this test of righteousness. You see, even in the midst of. Of your sin. If you use this test of righteousness, even in the sin that so easily entangles you, regardless of what that sin is, if you use the test of righteousness and ask these questions, what will it have as far as an effect in your life? It will have the effect of bringing you back to Jesus Christ and seeking his forgiveness and saying, Lord, I failed you, but I love your commandments, but I have disobeyed you. And I seek your mercy and your grace. 
See, it will have the effect of assuring you that you are in Christ in using this test of righteousness. But the second stated purpose, 1 John 5.13, is also, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. In order that you might persevere in the faith. This test of righteousness is to bring you to the place where you will be assured that you belong to Christ, that you have eternal life, and that you will persevere, take up that, that uh, uh, cross again, and follow the Lord Jesus Christ to give you perseverance. Uh, <clears throat> So, dear ones, let us take our Bible and consider today the text before us. First John, chapter three, verses four through nine. The Apostle John writes, in effect. Not only are you as God's children to practice righteousness because of the expectation of Christ's second coming, that was the subject of the two previous sermons, both his res the resurrection and the judgment. In other words, John is saying you're not only to practice righteousness because of your expectation of his second coming, but I now want to focus your attention upon the first coming of Christ. You should also practice righteousness because that was the very purpose in Christ's coming in his first coming. To take away your sin and to destroy the works of the devil. That should be a further incentive and motivation to your practicing righteousness. Today's sermon capsulized in one sentence is simply this. Living in righteousness is necessary in the Christian life. Because Christ came to take away sins and to destroy the works of the devil. Well, the Gnostic false teachers of John's day, against whom John wrote this epistle, would have described the purpose of John's or of Christ's first coming in quite different terms. They would not have described his purpose in coming to take away our sins. And to destroy the works of the devil, they would probably have described Christ's first coming in terms like this. Christ came to set the enlightened Christian free. Free from all confining, restricting prisons like the law of God. Like the written revelation of God. You remember they were into this mystical revelation, not the revelation that was given to the prophets and apostles. But this mystical experience that was not from God at all. They wanted to stay away from the written revelation of God. And so they would say that that was restricting and confining the written revelation from God. They also would say they were free from a worship service that was regulated by God's appointment alone. They would say we're free from church government under the oversight of elders. That's too confining and restricting. We're free from this material body. And we're free from this material world altogether. We're free. 
the churches in Asia, to which Paul or John was writing, were in fact losing members to this false gospel. This false gospel was and still is actually quite appealing and attractive to autonomous men and women who would not be fettered by any biblical constraints except those of their own choosing. Furthermore, this false gospel flattered their intellectual pride because they thought they had a knowledge through this special means, this mystical experience. They had a knowledge that was not common, that was not known to other Christians. So it fostered this intellectual pride within them. We must always, dear ones, be careful that we do not fall prey to intellectual pride as well. That we give glory to God, that as he illumines our mind and our understanding in the truth, that we see that it is all of him, that we give him praise. And that we not simply keep it up here, but that it, it becomes a part of our life and changes and transforms our family, our church and our nation. In the Gnostic theological system, Christians like the Apostle John were simply legalistic nitpickers because they loved and obeyed the law of God. Let me just uh, illustrate something here in regard to legalism again. We're approaching December 25th again in our calendar. And I think that uh, we can expect again because of our convictions that we are not to celebrate this particular day as a holy day, as a religious holiday that we can expect again. Uh, persecution in various forms, misunderstanding, separation, people considering us to be uh, Arrogant and proud because of our convictions. But let me simply say that the Apostle John and the Apostles themselves did not observe Christmas. There's no recollection. There's nothing in the word of God that teaches that they celebrated any such holiday. Why? Because religious worship and the religious holy days are not left up to us to determine when it is appropriate or how it is appropriate to worship God. God is to be worshipped only and always in the way in which he appoints and not in our own appointed means. The regulative principle of worship, dear ones, does restrict our worship services. It does not allow just anything into our worship services. And many people will find it very restricting and confining like the Gnostics of old. But it is the only way you can be assured that your worship is acceptable to the king is if you worship him as he has specifically appointed. I heard a tape this last week and the pastor was illustrating this truth by by this. If, if you were in a restaurant and the waiter came and you said, I'd like a, a big, juicy steak. 
And what he brought back to you was a chicken dinner. Would you accept it? Would you approve of it? Or would you send it back and tell him to give you what you had ordered? In like manner, when God says, bring to be steak and we bring chicken, why do we think all of a sudden that God becomes tolerant of that kind of thing if we ourselves would not tolerate that? You see, dear ones, the passing of time has not changed matters that much at all, has it? Where do you find contemporary Gnostics amongst churches today? In all the antinomian, antinomian simply means against God's law. In all the antinomian churches where the law of God is considered to be irrelevant in government, irrelevant in worship, irrelevant in discipline and in doctrine. I've heard this many, many times. Why would God have given me these gifts if he didn't intend for me to use them in his church? Now, why would God have given me the gift of writing songs if I can't write these songs and sing them in the worship service? Why would God have given me the ability to play an instrument if God didn't intend for me to play that instrument in the worship service? Or why would God have given, if you're a woman, given you the ability of, of teaching? If God did not intend for you to use that gift of teaching in the worship service. Or why would God have not, why would God have given you the gift of, uh, of dancing or drama and not expect you to use it in the worship service? And we can go on and on and on. To see, the issue is simply this again. People believe that God's restrictions are too confining. They want to worship God without these boundaries, without these fences, without being hedged in in any way. But God says it's not acceptable. I did not appoint it. And this is what this was exactly the false religion, the false worship, the false teaching that was being promoted by the Gnostics of days gone by. Freedom and liberty to do what you please. God, help us to purge out every semblance of that spirit of Gnosticism from our own lives and from our church and rather embrace the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved and obeyed the law of God. You see, John condemns the license of these false teachers and at the same time in this epistle, and in this section, he urges his dear children in the faith to practice righteousness because of two reasons. Christ came to take away our sins. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Let's consider briefly these two purposes in Christ's coming. Christ came to take away our sins. First John chapter three, verse four. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Righteous. <clears throat> 
Dear ones, to live in the moral black hole of the, these Gnostic false teachers, that is to live in their false freedom, is to live in total contradiction to the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. If one of my stated purposes, for example, in becoming married was that I might raise up a godly seed to the Lord God, and yet I refuse to practice righteousness by disciplining my children, by giving them a Christian education, by refusing to lead them in family worship, by refusing to oversee their relationships with the opposite sex. What would you conclude about my stated purpose in becoming married? Well, you must conclude I lied. If I said I wanted to raise a godly seed and I do everything in my powers at word and I refuse to use those means that God has given to me to raise godly seed, I lied. My life, my conduct, my words reveal that I did not sincerely marry in order to raise a godly seed or I would practice those righteous things God commanded, which by God's grace would lead my children to be godly. And dear ones, that causes us to reflect upon the vows which we have taken when our children were baptized, that we would lead and guide them in the ways of righteousness, that we would set an example of piety and godliness before them, that we would lead them in family worship and do all those things that God has given to us. Likewise, Dear ones, if the stated purpose of Christ was to take away our sins, and yet we who profess to be united with him in his death and resurrection live in unrepentant sin, live in flagrant disobedience to God's law, we have lied in our confession to be followers of Jesus Christ. We cannot be in union with the Christ of the Bible and completely contradict his purpose in coming by the way in which we live. That's like a rebellious child professing his love for his parents while all the while attacking every righteous thing for which his parents stand. It's a contradiction. It's a lie. John begins under this first purpose that Christ came to take away our sins by giving to us the nature of sin in verse six. The Christian must know what is sin if he is to practice righteousness. So what does John say sin is? Sin is lawlessness. That is sin. All sin is thinking, speaking, and behaving contrary to the law of God. Our shorter catechism says sin is any one want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. You see, dear ones, sin is not only deliberate transgressions against God's law, but it's also unintentional transgressions against God's law. Sin is not only knowledgeable transgressions against God's law, but sin is also Ignorant transgressions against God's law. You remember the sacrifice 
for unintentional sins in Leviticus chapter four, verses 13 through 14, that the people of God were to offer a sacrifice when they became aware that they had sinned against God. Ignorantly, unintentionally, they were yet to confess their sin and offer a sacrifice for that unintentional sin. And sin, dear ones, is not only doing what God forbids. It is also not doing or being all that God requires. The fact that we, even as elders, and this I think that we as elders and elders in all churches must publicly recognize the fact that we as elders, every time we change something in the church, why did we change it? Hopefully we changed it and we can demonstrate we changed it because we believe God's word teaches that. But that means that we weren't doing what was God had commanded. We were doing something contrary to what God commanded. That's sin. And for that, we as elders must publicly as well confess before God's people that we have sinned and seek God's forgiveness as well. All theological error is sin. It is not morally neutral. And that is why pluralism and tolerancy of error by nations and churches is such a grave, grave sin. It treats this sin of theological error as if it were unimportant or insignificant. Or as if the truth of God, as I read from a letter today written by a pastor, that the truth of God, there are certain truths that are simply minutia. God's truth is not minutia. God's truth reveals the very mind of God and we are to believe and obey it. Sin is falling short, dear ones, of the righteousness found in God's law. For God's law reveals the religious character, the righteous character of our God. And to love Christ is to love God's law. You say you love Christ. You will love God's law. For the righteous law simply reveals the righteous and holy character of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second point under... Christ came to take away our sins is this, that of the remedy to sin. Verse five. The divine remedy for all our sin is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins and in him there is no sin. The very purpose in Christ's first coming was to take away the guilt of our lawlessness to take away the condemnation and penalty of our lawlessness and to take away the power that lawlessness exercises in our lives. That was the purpose of the Lord coming. And there is, John says, no sin in him. That is, according to John's definition of sin, there's no law breaking. There is no lawlessness in the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not come, dear ones, to excuse lawlessness or to minimize it. He came to take all lawlessness away from his people. 
as the Lord Jesus hung upon that cruel cross. He took all of our sins as his people upon himself. Just as you will remember on that great day of atonement in the old covenant, God had commanded that two goats be presented to him on behalf of God's people. One goat was slain as a sin offering, while the other goat was referred to as the scapegoat. On the head of the scapegoat, Aaron laid his hands and confessed all of the sins of God's people upon that scapegoat. And then Leviticus 16.22 says, The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. The sins confessed upon that scapegoat was sent off into an uninhabited land to dwell, to stay there, away, separated from God's people. What a glorious picture of him who both died to pay the penalty for our lawlessness and carried away our transgressions, carried away all of our lawlessness and buried it with our Savior in the uninhabited land of his grave, not to be resurrected, bringing that lawlessness again up from the grave, but having buried it in that uninhabited land where it stayed forever forgiven by the Lord God, taken away from God's people, never to be brought up in condemnation of God's people again. Now, what if I had lived at the time of Moses and I decided I would secretly go out and rescue from its wandering in the wilderness this poor little scapegoat? And I would take that little scapegoat and I would embrace it and take it home as a pet, a treasured pet to have. How do you think God would have viewed me taking that scapegoat? That symbol upon which all of God's people's transgressions were poured out. The fierce anger of a holy God would have consumed me. For I would be contradicting God's purpose in providing that scapegoat. Instead of my sins being borne away, I would be embracing my sins and having fun with my sins by cherishing that scapegoat. And John says, the professing Christian who lives in lawlessness and who embraces lawlessness like a cherished pet is living in complete contradiction to the purpose of Christ's first coming which was to take away our sins. And thirdly, under this first point, the effect of abiding in Christ, the effect of abiding in Christ in verses 6 through 7. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The Christian is defined here by John as one who abides or lives in Christ. Since there is no sin in Christ, as we learned in verse five, how can one who is living in this Christ, who is righteous, 
live in habitual, unrepentant sin. He cannot. John says the effect of living in the Christ who came to take away our sins is that the Christian will practice righteousness. Just as Christ himself is righteous. Again, John is not speaking of sinless perfection when he says that the Christian is to practice righteousness. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, John has already indicated that no Christian can be sinlessly perfect. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. John is clearly not speaking of sinless perfection when he says that we are to practice righteousness. In fact, the present tense that is used here in these verses when it refers to not sinning, that the one who is in Christ does not sin, the present tense has the effect of one who is in Christ does not habitually continue to sin. It is not his character to sin. He has a new character. He has a new heart. He desires the things of God. And even in the midst of his trial and his struggling with sin, he cries out to God and says, Lord, forgive me. I grieve over my sin. There is a struggle going on within me. The present tense that's used here would indicate an habitual life of unrepentant sin, which is really the condition and the character of the unconverted. According to Romans chapter eight, that's the character of the unconverted. Is there no distinction, John says, between the converted and the unconverted, between the regenerate and the unregenerate, between the child of God and the child of the devil? Is there no difference at all? Of course there is. Romans chapter 8 says, Because the carnal mind, that is the mind of the flesh, the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are unregenerate and in their flesh unconverted and in their flesh cannot please God because they cannot submit to the law of God. But you can because you have a new nature, because God's law is written upon your heart. You can submit to his law. You can practice righteousness. Dear one, since this is the stated purpose of Christ's first coming, this purpose will have a sanctifying effect in the life of a Christian. If you meditate and dwell on why did Christ come to take away my sin? How then can I continue to live in it as if he never came? You see, Christ's purpose becomes the Christian's purpose to do away with sin. And the Christian becomes more diligent in therefore mortifying the power by the power of the Holy Spirit, those sins of the flesh. Such a purpose 
would not in, at all appeal to the Gnostic mind. For his concern is not in conformity to the law of God, but freedom from God's law. And very quickly, let us consider then the second purpose given by the Apostle John. Christ came not only to take away our sins, but Christ came to destroy the works of the devil in verses eight and nine. Look with those. Look with me at those two verses. First John, chapter three, verses eight and nine. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin for his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. John now presses his point even more forcefully. Not only is sin a transgression of the righteous character of God is revealed in his holy law, but now John says sin is defined as a work of the devil. Sin is a work of the devil. John not only proclaims that sin is contrary to the very nature of God and his righteousness, but now John says sin is also in conformity to the very nature of the devil. Now the Christian will find this truth. The Christian will find this truth so absolutely repugnant and detestable that he will, by all the means of God's grace at his disposal, seek to crucify all the works of the devil in his life. When he understands that sin is the work of the devil, he will not treat it lightly any longer. The second stated purpose of Christ's second coming is to destroy these very works of the devil. <clears throat> Under that purpose for Christ's coming, notice, first of all, in verse eight, the origin of sin, the origin of sin. John states that the one who sins and again, it's in the in the present tense, the one who habitually practices lawlessness manifests whose seed he really is. As Jesus told the wicked in his own day, as we read from John chapter eight earlier, you are of your father, the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. The very character of the of the devil, dear ones, is bent on breaking God's law. The devil hates God's law. The devil will not be bound by God's law. But that's not the character. That's not the heart and desire of the Christian. In fact, according to John, the devil has been sinning again. It's in the present tense. He's been sinning from the beginning. He's never stopped sinning. He's never done one righteous thing since he began sinning. And that's the character of the unregenerate. They cannot do anything righteous in God's sight. They cannot keep the law of God. They cannot submit to the law of God.
The devil, I would submit to you, is the epitome of antinomianism. Because he has been lawless from the beginning. Well, what's the remedy to sin? We find again in verse 8, the remedy to sin is the Lord Jesus Christ. The remedy to the works of the devil is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is manifested to destroy the works of the devil. The devil is that serpent of old that led all of mankind into a state of sin and misery. You see, dear ones, to embrace his works is to embrace a murderer far worse than a Nero, far worse than a Hitler, far worse than a Lenin or a Stalin, far worse than an abortionist. To embrace the works of the devil is to embrace a murderer who murdered all mankind as he led Adam and Eve into that deathly sin that brought death upon all mankind. To embrace the devil's works, dear ones, is to embrace a venomous cobra. To take it close to your heart. It is certain death. And it is antithetical to the purpose of Christ's first coming. To embrace the works of the devil. Dear ones, our hatred for all sin. For all works of the devil must grow into the same horror and righteous indignation which we have against abortion and sodomy and rape and incest or idolatry. All works of the devil we must grow in hating and despising in our lives. There shouldn't be this, this category of big sins and little sins in our life. Of important truths and insignificant truths. In God's revelation. Certainly we can, through our sin, exacerbate and make more heinous our sin. But all sin is equally horrifying and hated and despised by God. And is a work of the devil. <clears throat> Remember, dear ones, it was for simply, as we heard in our catechism class today, it was for simply eating the forbidden fruit that the murder of all mankind was instituted. For simply disobeying and eating a piece of fruit that God commanded, thou shalt not eat it. And therefore, beloved one of the areas that I think we must continuously, as God's people, be aware of, and I've said it in the sermon today, and I will continue to say so. One of the great sins in the church today, one of the great sins amongst Christians today, I believe, is this tolerancy of theological pluralism. There is a divine standard for right and wrong. There is a standard to which we can appeal. And when we say again that certain truths are insignificant and significant, certain sins are greater than others, we accuse God of being double-minded, that he didn't mean what he said. 
We accuse God of being capricious, that he punishes the big sins, but doesn't punish the little sins. We accuse God of saying that certain truths are unimportant. I don't read that at all in the word of God, that any truth that God gives to us is insignificant or unimportant. God, help us to flee from this work of the devil, theological, biblical pluralism, religious pluralism. It is a sin, a work of the devil that will cripple and destroy the church of Jesus Christ. We cannot become comfortable with the works of the devil. And dear ones, for this reason, we must continue to sing psalms of imprecation, psalms of cursing, bringing down God's judgment against God's enemies to the truth. For we pray when we sing those psalms that God will destroy them. That was the purpose for Christ coming to destroy the works of the devil. And we sing and we pray that God will destroy his enemies by either capturing them through his grace, just as he has done you and me, or by banishing them through shame or death. So that the glorious works of God, not the works of the devil, but the works of God may prevail through his church and through his world. The last point, dear ones, is simply this third point under Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. The the effect of being born of God in verse nine, John says, whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Again, John is saying, whoever has been begotten, regenerate, born of God, does not continue to live habitually in sin. He does not continue in that state. And he says not only that the one born of God does not continue But he also says he cannot continue. It is impossible for one born of God to continue in lawlessness, in breaking flagrantly God's law habitually. It cannot do so. Why is that the case? Because John says God's seed abides in him. God's seed lives in him. That seed, according to first Peter, turn with me there very briefly. First Peter, chapter one, that seed that abides within him is identified for us. First Peter one twenty two. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. That seed by which you were begotten, 
that seed which the Holy Spirit is implanted in your life and has produced fruit is his word. The spirit of God has caused that word to bring new life in your Christian life. Has caused you to become born again. You cannot continue to break God's law because it is written in your heart. It is a part of your being as a Christian now. You cannot do so, John says. In conclusion, dear ones, you know, the Lord's Supper, which we are celebrating this Lord's Day, is like this test of righteousness. The Lord's Supper, like this test of righteousness that John has given to us in 1 John chapter 3, the Lord's Supper is intended for your assurance. It is intended for your perseverance in the faith. It is not intended to see you fail. It is intended to see you pass, to grow, to mature in Christ. It is a sign and seal that you are partakers of the covenant of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It is a sign and seal that Christ has covenanted with his own dear, precious blood to be your life, to be your righteousness, to be your salvation. The Lord's Supper, dear ones, is the very means by which to assure your heart of your participation in all these glorious benefits. Yes, the Lord's Supper is a time of examination. But it's not for that reason a time for the Christian to run away in fear. Just because examination at the Lord's Supper reveals your sin and it reveals my sin is no reason to fear coming to the table. For in this meal, this supper that God has given to us, you will find that where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. In this meal, you will find that Jesus Christ has come to take away your sin. In this meal, you will find that Jesus Christ has come for the purpose of destroying the works of the devil. And in that grace which you receive from this meal, the Lord God will assure your heart and will grant to you the perseverance to renew your covenant with him and to be a faithful witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as you use the test of righteousness, that will assure your heart and that will cause you to persevere using the Lord's Supper as God has intended. It will also give you assurance of your faith in Christ and cause you to persevere. I believe, dear ones, oftentimes we are so afraid to face up to our own sins that we run from everything that God would use to remind us of our sin and our need of God. And in so doing, we run from the very means of grace God has given to bring us victory over the sin in our lives. It's like a man suffering with an excruciating headache. A continual problem with headaches and running from the prescribed cure because the cure reminds them that he has the problem of the headaches. And we run from the very means of God's grace that will cure 
that will bring healing, that will bring restoration and growth in our lives. Dear ones, don't flee this day. Don't flee tomorrow. Don't flee again from the divine cure for your spiritual headaches, for your sin. God has given you the Lord's Supper and this test of righteousness, which we saw today, to assure your heart before God and to grant you perseverance in following Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Christ, the one who has taken away our sin and destroyed the works of the devil. And, O oh God, we pray that, that you would cast our faith, our hope upon him, even now as your people. That we would see in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom you have sent to help us in our desperate need, that we would not flee from him when he offers himself to us in the word and in the sacrament. Oh, Father, we pray that you would cause your people to rejoice this day in these blessed means of your grace, your testimony to us that you love us with an everlasting love and have sent your son to purchase us unto yourself. Our Father, we ask that you would bless now as we prepare our hearts to partake of this meal. For Christ's sake, amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. 
For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.